You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning. I want to welcome you to worship. We're so glad that you're here, and I mean that. We, uh, we're so glad that you're here. This is church. We get to be together as God's people, in God's spirit, to unpack God's word. And we do that, as Matt's already sort of helped us to to sing together corporately, we do that because Jesus is alive. And that singular fact, that truth, that there was one who was God incarnate, who lived a perfect life, who died, and he rose again, and he did not die again because he's alive, and because God loves us. <laughs> the two greatest things like in the whole cosmos. He is alive and you are loved. And so because of that, we're here. We get to do this thing called church. And so I am delighted that you're here. It's not an accident that you are here. It's not an accident that you happen to be in this place at this time. So my name's Eric. I get to be one of the pastors down here. I want to welcome you. If you're a member, I want to say we're glad that you're here. You should be. That's what we expect because you get to come and be a part of what God's doing in this community through this people. If you're visiting with us this morning, we want to say a special word of welcome. We're delighted that you're here. We want to make sure that you have everything at our disposal to help you get connected and engaged in the life of this local church if this is where God has you. And so to do that, we're going to invite you to let us know that you were here. You can do that very simply and easily. You can text us your phone number or your email address or wherever you want, Mike, to send a carrier pigeon to your house, whatever, to this phone number, and we will connect you with the next steps of what's going on in this campus in particular and our church in general, we believe that the local church is God's plan for your life. And if it's not this church, that's fine. Praise God. We want to help you get connected with the one that is. But if it is this church, we really do want to move you forward to help you, to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. And there's not just me doing that. There's a whole team of people, teams of people, in fact, that are all about that work. And so I want to let you know, officially, on behalf of our elder, trustee, chairman, and the senior pastor of Bethel Bible Church, that this morning at all of our campuses, we've already entered into formally and officially a general business meeting, the purpose of which is to have congregational affirmation of those who have been nominated for the office of elder and deacon, Those people have already been vetted and approved by our trustee elders. This is an opportunity for the congregation to affirm that whole process. So if you are a member, I invite you in the foyer at the end of this service to go out and vote. They'll just verify your name, cast your ballot. Uh, The business meeting will formally and officially be over 15 minutes after the final service of whatever campus happens to go the longest. That'll be the South Campus. Just saying. (laughs) Now then, want to uh, make sure that all of us are readying our hearts and our minds, perhaps even our bodies, to be together as God's people. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to dive into God's Word. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you are the God that hears. You're the God that cares about the, the words that we speak, the thoughts of our hearts and minds. And so would you center and ready all of us 
would you, the greatest communicator in the cosmos, would you now convey to us your truth? Would you connect with us? We know that it is your desire, so would you stay all distraction, any hindrances, any, anything that might prevent us from hearing what you have for us this morning? God, we love you. Thank you for loving us, for being our God. We pray all this in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Some of you have heard me tell this story before, but I'll tell it again. In the early part of the 20th century, my great-great-great-grandmother died. Her name was Carmelita, and she was 114 years old. That's true. 114 years old, she came from this little village in rural Mexico that was all pretty much family, a bunch of Spaniards that had come over from Spain, and she was 114 years old, had never seen electricity, had never had anything that we would consider medicine in her life ever. And one day, when she was 114 years old, she gathered all of the family together, and she said, it's time for me to go. And the family all panicked, and like, oh no, you can't go. And they, she said, Psh, I'm 114. That's enough. So one cousin got up and tried to run out, and she said, hey, 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 where are you going? And the cousin said, I'm going to go get the doctor. She said, I've never had an aspirin in my whole life. I'm not about to start now. Sit down. And so he did. And so this woman, at 114 years old, my grandmother was there. She remembers this. She gathered all the family together. She said, it is time for me to die. Because I guess when you're 114, God just throws you the keys and says, your call. I mean, whenever you're, go for it. And she said, I want you to know that I am proud of you. I want you to know that I love you. I want you to know that I have done my best, and I think you're all going to be okay. And with that, she put her hands clasped in front of her, and she lowered her head, and she died. What a great, great way to have your last words as a blessing to the extended family. My grandmother was forever moved by that and she would tell us that story and she always took every opportunity, not knowing when her last days would be, to bless us, to infuse and to impart wisdom and joy. So I wonder, for my own sake, for yours, have you ever thought about what your last words might be? For some of you, your last words are going to be something like, <laughs> dude, hold my beer, and that'll be it. You're going to go do it, and then no one's ever going to hear from you again. That'll be it. Some of you are going to say something like, there's no such thing as cannibals, and then that'll be it. You'll just be dead and tasty. Some of you are going to say, oh, I bet I can watch this, and that'll be your last words. But here's what I can just about guarantee. Having been in many hospital rooms and even more hospice rooms, I can just about guarantee that your last words will not be, oh man, I, I wish I had worked a little harder to make a little more. I've been around a lot of people. Not one time as they passed did they ever even have that sentiment. But I have seen, unfortunately, a number of people who have come to the end of their life soaked with regret that they didn't do what they knew they should have done or been who they knew they could have been or should have been or worse yet, that they didn't pour into the person or persons that they knew they were supposed to have poured into. Just as important as what our last words will be is who 
those last words will be spoken to. So this morning, we get to talk about, I think, one of the high watermarks of our entire Bible, seeing some famous last words. And what we're going to glean and discern from studying the passage this morning is our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. Work your witness, not your well-being. It's going to be my charge and my challenge to all of us for the morning is that all of us would walk out of here committed to working our witness, not our well-being. We are in the book of Acts. We are in Acts chapter 20. This is going to be the fastest sermon on Acts chapter 20 you will probably ever hear. I'm going to boogie is the technical term. But it's because I want to cover all the passage because I think Dr. Luke, as he creates this narrative, wants us to see something. He wants us to glean and to get something very important from Acts chapter 20. Now, the Apostle Paul is on his third missionary journey. He has just been in Ephesus, which is on the west coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And he's spent many years there teaching and training and raising up leaders. I want you to just sort of see this map on screen to get an idea. Paul leaves from Antioch in Syria. He goes to all of these places. Chapter 19 concludes with some pretty crazy things going on, some riots, where 25,000 people gather in the amphitheater in Ephesus, and they start chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, for hours. Paul finally leaves Ephesus, and we're going to pick up this travelogue, if you will, written by Dr. Luke in chapter 20. Remember that the gospel of Luke is about the birth of the Christ. The book of Acts is the birth of the church. It's a two-volume set that is intended to be taken together. And Luke wants us to understand that the kingdom of God is breaking forth. But it's not like we expect So Acts chapter 20. I'm not going to put these first uh, verses on screen. I just want you to kind of get the geography in your mind. I'm going to walk through these very briefly. Verse 1 of chapter 20. After the uproar in Ephesus ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them. This is going to be a theme throughout the entire chapter. We're going to see encourage, 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 parakaleo, to come alongside and exhort, to come alongside and comfort and counsel. And you're going to see this theme throughout the entire chapter. He gathers the disciples in Ephesus and he encourages them. He said farewell and departed for Macedonia. That's incredible. Macedonia is Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. By the way, all three cities in which he was beaten or stoned or hit with rods. And yet Paul goes back to these places, to Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea in Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement. That's interesting. Paul continues to go back to the church. Paul never got sick of the church. Paul never got tired of the church. Paul loved the church because he got to see jacked up, sin-soaked people loved by Jesus coming together. Paul never got weary of that. He encouraged them. He came to Greece. There he spent three months. This is in primarily Corinth. This is what we'll call the painful visit. This is where he has a lot of consternation and conflict with the people of Corinth. And so he has to write some very difficult letters. What we have called 2 Corinthians will be the net result of that time in Greece. We think during that time he also goes up to what's called Illyricum, which is modern day today, Serbia, the Dalmatian coast. He goes that far, splitting the gospel and planting churches during this three-month stay in Greece. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia to these three cities where he was beaten up 
with, with rods and stone. And it's at that stay when he's in Macedonia that he will write the book of Romans. So if you like to do this kind of thing in your Bible, right there in Acts chapter 20, verse 3, you can write off to the side, Romans is written. Now we're going to get a roll call in chapter 20, verse 4. It's sort of interesting. He says, Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, who was from Lystra, by the way, and the Asians, he doesn't mean people from central China, he means those from the Roman province of Asia, which is modern-day western Turkey. We had Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Oh my goodness, all the detail, who cares? I do. We do. Because this is detailed history. This happened. The church is breaking forth. The messianic community of the finished work of Jesus Christ is breaking forth because Jesus is alive. His spirit is moving and the church is expanding. This is not fiction. It's not myth. This actually occurred with these actual people, with these actual places. God never forgets a name. They go to Troas, which is northwest Turkey. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we, Luke is included in this number now, for seven days. All these different people. We got a Berean, we got a Thessalonica, and we got a Lystra, we got a guy from Derby. All of these places that were totally gospel bereft. Paul plants churches. These people who were far from God are now a part of the agency of God. I don't know if that carbonates your spinal fluid like it does mine, but this is worth it. These are people who are utterly irreligious and pagan. And yet Paul sounds forth the gospel, and now those who were the harvest are the agents of the kingdom. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. There are so many people around this community who are far from God, but I envision, I pray within... 12 months, 18 months, some of those same people who are far from God will be declaring the gospel of God. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yes, and we know that that is precisely God's purpose and his plan with this place. And we get to be participants in that. Those who were part of the sending mission of Paul's home church in Antioch and in Jerusalem are now collecting aid from those planted churches to deliver support back to the original sending church. Oh, the humility involved in that. But now Jerusalem and Antioch are being persecuted, and so all of these Gentile Christians are sending support and aid back to Jerusalem and Antioch. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Well then, verse 7. On the first day of the week... Now, I want to make a little bit of a big deal here (laughs) because this is the first time in our Bible we begin to hear that the church now meets on Sunday. Paul, as an apostle, one who has received direct instruction and revelation from the risen Lord Jesus Christ, says, hey, the church is going to begin to meet on Sunday. We're not going to gather in the synagogues on Saturdays any longer. The new messianic community will meet on Sundays. Why? Because our meeting together is a proclamation and a declaration of the fact that Jesus is alive. I don't know what you think about when you consider coming to church or not, but I'm betting for many of us, we're not thinking, hey, I should go to church because it is a projection of my belief that Jesus is alive. For many of us, it's, I guess I probably should because, you know, I want some blessings here and there and, you know, there's coffee. 
But what Paul is setting up here is that when we come together on a Sunday morning, the day of the Lord, we'll hear in Revelation chapter 1, the Lord's day, what we are saying is Jesus is alive. Our being here proclaims the resurrection. So yes, let me say pastorally, as fervently as I can, your being in church matters because it is a declaration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So verse 7, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them in Troas, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Every preacher's favorite verse in the Bible. He gathered him together for a quick devotional. The next thing you know, it says he kept prolonging. The the verb is he kept saying, now in closing, now in closing, now in closing, and finally, brethren, and then seven hours later, it's midnight! Yes! So I hope you're comfortable, because we're going to be here a while. No, I'm kidding. I would love that. You would not. I get that. He kept prolonging his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. That's an odd detail. Who cares? Is this like a Pier 1 they're meeting in? No, 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 no. He's telling us something. It's oil lamps and it's burning all of the oxygen out of the room and so people are getting sleepy and drowsy i know that's hard to believe when preaching goes long people get sleepy i can't imagine it either but this was happening this is this is two thousand years ago things have changed and a young man he's a teenager neonias is the word there a young man named eutychus whose name incidentally means fortunate (laughs) not today my friend his name was eutychus He was sitting at the window. He sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. This is the first lock-in in church history right here. It's midnight, and he's going to keep going. I love this. And being overcome by sleep, Eutychus fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. That's a nice way of saying he was dead dead. Luke is a doctor. He has seen dead things before. He falls out the third story window, and he dies because that's what happens when you fall out of a third story window, right? But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him, which must have been a weird day for Eutychus. Like, what happened? He was like in Leviticus 18 and the hair turned white and next thing I know Paul's over me and I'm dead and I'm alive? What in the world? Luke's telling us something super important here though. Number one, don't fall asleep in church. You might die. (laughs) Number two, Eutychus was dead. This is a callback to Elijah in 1 Kings when a boy dies and Elijah scoops him up. Paul is being linked to the Old Testament prophet. He is a New Testament apostle. He was dead. He was dead dead and now he is alive. This is Luke telling us this is the first flicker of how it's going to go. The gospel is going to sound forth and dead things are going to come to life because that's what the church is all about. Eutychus is brought back to life. Verse 11, when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. Oh yeah, baby, he wasn't done. You know, it's all in a normal preaching scope. You preach, someone dies, you raise him back to life. You keep preaching. That's pretty awesome. And so finally he departed. Verse 12, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. That's an interesting little detail. Chios is the birthplace of Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. 
Luke is telling us, hey, there is a greater odyssey going on. The kingdom of God is breaking forth. The church is born and she will not be stopped. The next day we touched at Samos. Samos is the birthplace of Pythagoras, who apparently invented triangles, which I don't know why that matters, but it's interesting to me, okay? And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, meaning the western province in western Turkey, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Paul has set his face for Jerusalem. Just like Jesus in Luke chapter 9, Jesus set his face for Jerusalem. He had something he needed to accomplish. And so the Apostle Paul, following the example of Christ, sets his face to Jerusalem. He doesn't want to go to Ephesus, not because he doesn't like them, but because he knows he loves them so deeply that he'll be distracted and he'll be delayed. So now finally, central passage, Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, Miletus is 30, day, uh, sorry, 30 miles away from Ephesus. doesn't seem like that far away for us, but that's a two-day journey because it's very rocky, rugged terrain. So what Paul is saying is, hey, I'm going to ask you to give up four days of your breadwinning potential to come and see me, to come and be with me, because I'm going to charge you, I'm going to challenge you. This is Paul's highest pastoral theology, the high watermark, his final famous last words. So he calls these elders. Remember, this church is only three years old. Paul says, I'm going to inspire you by my own example, and he calls these guys to himself. A very pertinent text today as we affirm our new elders and deacons. He asked them to come to him, verse 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Again, the Western Roman province of Asia. I was with you. I didn't try to achieve some celebrity status where I was a platform communicator from afar. No, 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 no. I was right down in the world with you. In your brokenness, in your pain, in your perversion, in your harm and in your hurt, I was with you day after day after day. Paul's giving us a model for Christian leadership. We get right down in with the people that we love and lead and guide and guard because they're worth it to God, therefore they must be worth it to us. And if you encounter a Christian leader in any capacity, pastor, elder, deacon, volunteer, ministry leader, who does not want to be with the people, look again. Paul says this is the model for Christian ministry is that we are with the people. That's our business. We are in the sheep business, not in the barn business. Hence our incredibly attractive barn that we have here at 202 South Broadway. Serving the Lord. Paul understood that as he was loving, leading, guiding, guarding other people, it was a service to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. I was getting attacked by the religious. I was getting attacked by the irreligious. But you are worth it. And the way I serve the Lord Jesus is loving you, Paul says. This is the apostle Paul we're talking about here. But it was serious, serious business to him. You yourselves know, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Yes, there were large format gatherings, large proclamations from a platform perhaps, but Paul also went one-on-one -on -one discipleship model, house to house. Martin Luther has a great quote on this. He said, 
When elders and pastors come to your home, you must let them in, else you are a bear in sheep's clothing. So I just want you to know, all of you, we're dispatching all the elders this afternoon, and they're coming. <laughs> Cookies are good. Wheatgrass smoothies are better. But be ready, they're all coming. And you have to let them in, because, no, not really. They're not coming. You know how I went from house to house, not just from a platform, from a distance, but individually connecting with people and bringing the gospel to bear on individual life circumstances. That's ministry. Verse 21, testifying both to Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I got to give the gospel to the Jews and to the Gentiles that the righteousness of God, the fundamental need of every human heart is now available for free. You don't earn it. You don't achieve it. You don't obtain it. You receive it. And I get to tell that story to everybody in large gatherings in an individual one-on-one conversations. And now, verse 22, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, but he suspects it'll be bad. Verse 23, Except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me, and I'm going anyway. It's going to hurt. I'm going to be inconvenienced. I'll probably get killed, but I'm going anyway because this is the Spirit's leading. Verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Paul was working his witness, not his well-being. It's a great model for all of us. If only I may finish my course. Oh, my goodness, did he. This is his whole objective in life. What precisely was he trying to accomplish? To finish his race well, no matter what. That's so convicting. So convicting. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I get to be the one, Paul says, to tell the great story, the good news, the awesome announcement that the righteousness of God is dispensed freely to every human heart that will receive and believe. It's a great story. You don't have to obtain it or accomplish it. It's a gift. Verse 25, and now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. It's like my great, great, great grandmother gathering them all together saying, you're you're never going to see me again. And so I pass the torch, I charge, and I challenge you. Verse 26, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. We leave that translation because it's sort of a well-known text, but the translation is literally, I know that if anyone turns away, I am not responsible. I have done all that I possibly could. I have proclaimed the gospel in every conceivable context, on every corner. My hands are clean. If anyone should fall away, that's not on me. And Paul, who I think had a special affinity for the prophet Ezekiel, quotes here Ezekiel 33, 8, where God tells Ezekiel, if you preach and they fall away, that's not on you. So you preach. But if you don't preach and they don't believe, that's on you. Paul says, no, no, no. There is no more that I could have done. If anyone in Ephesus falls away, that's not my fault. I have left it all out on the field. I have worked my witness, not my well-being. Verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole of the Bible. 
the whole counsel of God. How did Paul do that? He was only in Ephesus for three years because every single day he would get up early and he would teach at the school hall of Tyrannus. And then at midday, he would teach for hours in the school hall of Tyrannus. And then after he was finished working, he would teach in the school hall of Tyrannus for three solid years, every single day. And what was he teaching? He was teaching the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible, not just the fun parts. He would turn and he would say, let me tell you about Father Abraham. He lied about his sister being his wife or his wife being his sister. That points to Jesus. Do you understand that God has come incarnate? Let me tell you about Moses. Let me tell you what he did. He brought the people through the Red Sea, through death into life. Don't you see? Jesus. Let me tell you about King David. Yes, he slayed a giant, but let me tell you how that points to Jesus. And he would proclaim the gospel throughout the whole of the full counsel of God. And we get to do that here, regardless of the text we're teaching, we get to point people to the cross. Just like we sang this morning, the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. I charge our elders every single year with this verse. I don't know how you think you came to be an elder or a deacon or a volunteer ministry leader of some capacity, but what this text is telling us is the Holy Spirit of God himself has done it. He has led. He has provided this context. And you might think, well, it was just some dudes in a room who, you know, just put my name forward. Oh, no, 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 no. The Holy Spirit has done this. The Holy Spirit has been in this from eternity past. So let me say it very directly. The office of elder or deacon or other ministry leader is not given to anybody to honor them. Not at all. It is an affirmation of what the Holy Spirit is already doing in and through that person. The Holy Spirit has done this thing. And what has he called these people to do? To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. That's a weird verse. Because God, the Father, didn't die, didn't bleed. This is a very clear declaration of the deity and divinity of Jesus Christ. Because God can't die unless he becomes flesh. God obtained the church. He did it through the blood of his own son, Jesus. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Let Let me just tell you very quickly, taking all of Paul's writings together, what does Paul mean by a wolf among the flock? Always, every time, Paul talks about a wolf is someone who begins to infiltrate, saying that there is another authority other than Scripture. Anyone who comes in and starts saying, well, I know the Scripture says this, but I mean, oh, come on. Uh, My experience tells me, or the, the cultural, societal norms say that. No, that's wolfy. And so we have people every now and then say, oh, come on, you know, I think we should do this in our church, and I know that you guys love the Bible, but oh, come on. And I stop them, and I go, and it gets weird. I'm in a coffee shop. People stop, and they look. I'm like, oh, sorry, we got a wolf here. It's all right. He's trying to tell us that Scripture is not the baseline of authority that cultural expression and experience is, and and we 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 don't do that here. And I'm grateful for a church that has eldership and pastorship that says, no, 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 no. It's right there. It's our middle name, Bible. We believe in the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency of Scripture. It is the final authority on all matters of life and church polity. And I'm so thankful for that. Paul says, if you begin to entertain anyone from among yourselves who says Scripture plus is authority, that's wolfy, and we have to deal with that. 
I know, verse 29, that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And unfortunately, Paul's concern for the church at Ephesus was well-founded. So much of our New Testament centers on Ephesus, the book of Ephesians. John himself ends up being the pastor in Ephesus. Timothy pastors in Ephesus. 1st, 2nd, 3rd John written to the church in Ephesus. 1st and 2nd Timothy written to the church in Ephesus. Until we come to Revelation chapter 2 where Jesus says, you have forgotten your first love and he removes their lampstand. So much of our Bible centers on Ephesus. Paul was right in his concern. Verse 30, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. This is Paul saying, I didn't get cynical. I didn't get jaded. I entered my life into yours. And you should do the same, he says to his elders. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And all things I have shown you, I have inspired by example. That is Christian leadership. I have inspired by my own example. I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Except that we have no record of Jesus ever saying that. Strange. However, Jesus alludes to that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, and apparently in some of Paul's personal training from the Lord Jesus for 14 years, as Jesus is equipping Paul out in the deserts of Arabia, apparently he said this to Paul directly, and then it's a, also a... a Reference to Matthew 10, verse 8. Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. This is emotional. He's never going to see them again. This is his final words. They kneel down in the sand and they pray together and they're going to say goodbye. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him. And so those elders and deacons who were going to be affirmed this afternoon, we're going to gather them. We're just going to kiss all over them because that's biblical. So you can come. I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. Relax. Verse 38. Being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again and they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. This is Paul's famous last words as we see what it looks like to work your witness and not your well-being. So let me try to see if I can draw this right down to all of us and apply this to every one of our lives. And so let me say it this way, the only thing that any of us really has any control over whatsoever is actually our witness. God controls every other conceivable circumstance in the cosmos, everything. He even controls your well-being and he controls your wealth. That's his purview, that's his, that's his uh, purview. The only thing you and I have any control over at all is actually our attitude, how we respond to this life. So let me put it a different way, a little bit more directly. If your wealth or your well-being are the primary focuses of your work, then you're always going to be frustrated and grasping because it will just never, ever quite be enough. 
But look at the satisfaction that Paul gets to have with his own life. I left it all out on the field. There is nothing else I could have done. I'm finished. Instead, we look at Paul's life and we see what famous last words should be. So let me just give four very quick implications from Acts chapter 20 and how I think all this supports us working our witness and not our well-being. Number one, nothing encourages God's people like God's word. Nothing encourages God's people like God's word. Yes, we want to give side hugs and we want to say nice things on Instagram, but that stuff doesn't really, no. Nothing encourages, that's the theme of Acts 20, is encouragement, and nothing does that like God's word. Paul had a vision given to him by the Holy Spirit in which every person in the Roman province of Asia would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just want you to know, we believe as Bethel Bible Church that he has charged us that every person in East Texas would have access to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ from someone who's associated with Bethel Bible Church. Let that sink in for a moment. We believe that one of the things God has called us to is that every single person living in East Texas should have access to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ clearly articulated from somebody associated with Bethel Bible Church. Does that to say that there aren't other good churches? That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying we know that what God has called us to do is to clearly articulate the gospel in every conceivable context because nothing encourages the people like God's word. We could spend a whole lot of other time and energy and investment, doing group therapies and topical this, that, or the other, but we believe that we are to be dispensers of God's word, and so that's why we do what we do. It's God's word that encourages us. And when we proclaim God's word, we get to proclaim the gospel, the good news, no matter what we're teaching. If we're in the book of Judges, if we're in the book of Ruth, if we're in the book of Revelation, we get to say, don't you see, the righteousness of God has come. It is offered freely in the finished work of the person of Jesus Christ. It's a great story. And nothing encourages the human heart like that story. Number two, Christian ministry is about service, not celebrity. I know that we all know that, but I just want to remind our existing ministry leaders, our deacons, our elders, this is not a position given you to honor you. This is an affirmation of what we believe the Spirit of God is already doing in and through you for the people of God. This is not about people being recognized as, well, they've put in their time. I guess it's time for them to step up to varsity. Absolutely not. Nothing could be more unbiblical. It is not about uh, celebrity. It's about service. It is about people going low, getting down into the hurt and the harm of the people that we love because those people matter to God and therefore they matter to us. Number three, your witness is who you want God to see. Who is it that you want God to see when he sees you? Paul's conscience was completely clear and clean before God. Certainly Paul recognized his own capacity and capability of sin, but he claimed Christ. And he knew that he had done and said and preached and proclaimed all that he could to the people of Ephesus. He had fulfilled his call completely with no regrets. So are we more concerned with how God sees us or are we more concerned with how other people see us? (laughs) Yeah, that's not even close. It was totally convicting this whole week as I thought about that. And quite clearly, I care more about how other people see me than how God sees me. But it's a renewing charge and a challenge to say, wait a minute, 
I want to have no regrets. I want to spend every ounce of energy and time and resource that I have working my witness, not my well-being. Now, here's the gospel, because here's the fourth point. If the third point is that your witness is who you want God to see, here's the fourth point. Here's the relief. God sees Jesus. And that's very good news. If you are a Christian, your identity is in Christ. And so we have this unique calling and privilege to walk in and work that reality. That when Jesus is seen by God, obviously the Father loves the Son, but more spectacularly incredible. I can't tell you how many Christians I encounter. Sometimes it's the person in my mirror who don't fully embrace this. That when God sees me, he sees me with the exact same affection and attention that he sees Jesus. He could not possibly love me more. So much of what I encounter in counseling context is just people who really just do not feel loved. They simply just don't realize that they have value and matter and significance and weight and worth, but they are loved piercingly despite all of the evidence to the contrary. Despite all of the reasons to not be, he loves me. Do you know what kind of unleashing freedom and joy and purpose that produces? God sees Jesus. So yes, I want to be mindful of that. I want that to infiltrate all of my thinking, all of my feeling. I don't have to obtain or achieve or accomplish. I have a witness already because God sees Christ when he sees me. And so I get to walk in that sphere of joy and completion already. And then be ready to give an answer for the hope that I have when people say, why why do you have the high pro glow? What is it about you? And I say, not in some cheesy Pollyanna way, but oh my gosh, I'm so loved. Like I, there's nothing else for me to accomplish. There's nothing. And so let me just say, if your whole life is precisely trying to accomplish your own wealth or your well-being, it's a wasted life. You'll, you'll never get it. But if you recognize that it's already finished, you are loved. God sees Jesus. Then you can walk around working your witness and leave your well-being to the only being who's actually capable of handling that project. Because you and I, my friend, are dangerously unqualified to keep ourselves going. Work your witness, not your well-being. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for this passage. We thank you for the example, the testimony of the Apostle Paul. And I thank you, Father, for those in this room who are Paul's to me who are exemplary in their love of you, in their humility, in their service, and how they show the gospel by their faithful uh, attendance, leadership, how they love and lead and guide and guard and serve your flock. So may that increase. We know that is your plan. Give us wisdom to discern and to see that. Give us courage and boldness to follow that. Father, I pray for these guys who are stepping into the office of elder and deacon, for those who will step into roles of ministry, leadership, and service. And now we know that we have a real enemy who hates your church, who will stop at nothing to to sideline them, to distract them. And so would you surround with a hedge of protection? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us character? Would you give us the capacity to live lives of no regret, that like Paul, we can say we have poured it all out because you are worth it. So may you receive our lives as worship, God. We pray all these things the only way we can in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus.
Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.